Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. This is episode number 73. I'm going to change things up on everybody, but before I do that, I am your host, Michael Folks, if you've been enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, I hope you run by our uh, sponsors over at NewCloud. If you're looking for any kind of interactive mapping or illustration services, you can find them at newcloud.com slash drunken UX. Drop in there and let them know that that the beard sent you. Otherwise, if you're looking for us, I encourage you to go track us down on Twitter or Facebook at slash drunken UX. If you're on the Instagrams slash drunken UX podcast, that will find us in all of those places or Drop in and chat with us. We are on Discord at slash drunken or at drunkenux.com slash Discord. That'll get you the invite. Do the whole thing. Drop you in the channel. We chat with you. Uh, you make fun of us. It's a whole circle of life thing. Folks, I have a little special thing going on tonight. Unfortunately, Aaron cannot be with us, so I thought, what better way to uh, celebrate than to pack the house with some of my best friends in the world? That maybe sounds bad on Aaron, doesn't it? That was not very kind of me. Um Aaron, we love you, and we uh, expect you back here next week, as a matter of fact. Um, But we had, so this last week, it was uh, High Ed Web, and you've heard me mention this uh, conference many, many times in past episodes. It's a giant uh, conference of people who do marketing, web marketing, web development, design, UX, accessibility, content strategy, all things web related to higher education, university systems. Um, private schools, international Keeping your schools. sanity, doing all the things. There are some sessions <laughs> on that as well. Yes, indeed. And so I thought, what better way to celebrate? They they were doing kind of a neat thing, obviously, because of COVID. So the whole uh, conference was uh, virtual this year. And so I reached out to a few folks and brought them in. Uh, joining me on the other microphones are Paul Gilzow, Matt Ryan, and the the illustrious Nikki Mazzaro-Kaufman. And you know what? I'm just going to hand everything over to you guys. I don't want to do the introductions. Uh, you folks, tell everybody where you're from, what you do, and and how you fit into this wild world of of web things. Who's Go for it, it Nikki. <laughs> I, I like. I love my chat. Everybody's pointing at a different box. <laughs> Not course, it. Nobody's no. in the same place on each other's screens. Like Paul's oh. just like pointing to space. <laughs> Paul, tell us uh, all about uh, you're you're the one everybody's familiar with probably because I've had you on the show before. So. That's only fair that I make you go first. All right, that'll, that'll work. So Paul Gilzo, uh, at the University of Missouri, I'm a programmer analyst. Uh, I'm in charge of the, along with a colleague, uh, building, designing, and maintaining the web infrastructure that we have for all of our sites. And then I'm the lead uh, WordPress architect for our campus. So I'm Nikki Massaro Kaufman. I work for Penn State University. And my, I work as a programmer analyst and my current position, I am doing development for the um, College of Arts and Architecture's Office of Digital Learning. I'm Matt Ryan. I also work at Penn State. I work for outreach and, uh, outreach and online education. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, a, I am the UI slash UX designer for that group. For the for the web uh, strategy group, and uh, I sort of what what it says on the tin. I I, I do UI and UX work both, um, and uh, 
do a, quite a bit of of both sort of the the, the soup to nuts of your user research to fiddly design work. Okay, so Nikki, I'm going to start with you because while Paul's been on the show before, we've had a colleague of yours on, um, Brian Olendike joined us. I think it was um, partway through season two. I may be fudging my brain on that because I don't know these things nearly as well as Aaron does. But Brian was on. Um, he's one of the the main brains behind the Hacks CMS and Hacks Editor, which is a web component centric. Uh, approach to kind of like what Gutenberg is doing, but with an eye towards, you know, no dependencies on any platform, accessibility front and center, and and built entirely on open standards that make it very flexible, very portable, and all of these things. So let me start there in terms of what have you been doing with web components of late? Because I know that uh, you have gotten steeped into that world uh, recently. Yeah, so um, what I have mostly finished, but I, you know, there's always things we can do to improve is the A11Y dash media player or dash media dash player. It's a um, it's a media player that is built for accessibility for our online courses, but could be used for other purposes. And everything about it is built from web components which means that it can be used anywhere. You just include the JavaScript and use the tag and you've got it. It uses progressive enhancement. So if you don't have the JavaScript, it's just going to show up. You know, you're using a video tag in the middle or a YouTube iframe or an audio tag. And so that will be, uh, that's integrated within our hacks block editor project, the hacks CMS, which is an entire CMS built around hacks, hacks 11, which is the hacks CMS plus 11. And um, we have Elms LN, which is a Drupal-based learning management system that students authenticate into. And uh, that also has hacks in the video player. And uh, we have another project that I've been working on this year. Uh, It's a redesign for our, our virtual studio because I'm working with arts courses and how do you submit... Uh, your work online for an arts course? How do you critique it? How do you encourage students to provide feedback? And uh, we do that with a version of the studio that Brian had to put together in two weeks time at one point. And now we, now that we've gotten past uh, some of the COVID rush, we are, you know, I have some breathing space to look at what we want to do with that. And that front end will be entirely web components based. It's going to sit as the front end to our Drupal-based systems, but if we someday want to migrate off of Drupal, it just needs, you know, uh, in the HTML tag, it just needs attributes for the data sources, and then it will just build the interface from there. Um, Let me ask a a quick question about that video player, too. Um, Is that something that you guys wrote from scratch or is that like, I'm familiar with tools like able player um, that are very like accessibility forward media players. Is it built on top of that or is it something you developed? What's the sort of nature of that player? I'm going to call it able player inspired in that, um, you know, for, for our needs, there was a point where able player was the only thing that could meet that, but I wanted something that was more componentized so that I could style it and theme it. A little more, a little bit more flexibly, and so there are some features that I don't have in it yet that Able Player does, 
but uh, it was definitely inspired by the Able Player work. It's kind of like if the YouTube player and Able Player had a, a decent looking baby. <laughs> um, let me go, um, Paul and Matt, to you guys. Um, same kind of question, but from a slightly different angle. Is anything, especially, Paul, I know uh, with the WordPress rollout you guys have been working on and um, and how that applies to things like, you know, what you're going to do with Gutenberg or about Gutenberg, as the case may be. Any web component stuff flowing through any of that work or has it is it something you're trying to avoid entirely right now? So if you remember, maybe a couple of years ago, I talked about that dream system where we would have a design system. And as we built design system components, they'd flow into both WordPress and Drupal. We've actually got that at a alpha stage now to almost a beta stage where our systems now actually can consume the design system. So as my colleague who's in charge of the design system updates things, he can push those out. Then I update from his system, pull those down and it flows out to our, our base theme is what we call it. Um, and those design system components are immediately available in all the sites as soon as they update. So that's kind of the first stage. The next stage that we want to reach is to start swapping out some of those with web components. Um, you asked about, you mentioned Gutenberg. We actually haven't gone to Gutenberg still. Uh, the initial hesitation was with the accessibility of it. Um, it's better now. Uh, I think from WP Campus, I forgot the speaker that talked about it. They're at about 66% completion of the different issues that were raised. Uh, the challenge, though, being that as they fix issues, Gutenberg is progressing along, so more issues are created. And so they're kind of at this state of never quite reaching completion. And so one of the things we've discussed is taking the Hacks CMS layer, that piece, and putting it on top of WordPress and Drupal instead of Gutenberg and using that and flowing that through. Uh, the challenge in either if direction... If it makes you feel any better... We're talking about the same thing, but not with, we don't use WordPress. We use a different CMS, but we're discussing basically the exact same thing. The challenge, the hesitation so far is one, we just don't have the resources to move as fast as we would like to do. I'd like to go. And the other is, is simply retraining content people in a new interface and how that works because they're so used to the old interfaces. It, that's been it, more than, you know, any technical or logistical complaints about Gutenberg or, you know, the accessibility and whatnot, just getting people used to it, especially when they have been used to the old style editing process, even if it's not WordPress, that, that old sort of WYSIWYG approach to, to content editing has been so ingrained in a lot of people that the change is such a uh, culture shock kind of thing to them. Um, I can handle it fine because I understand the transition, you know, how what a block is and how to think in them. But a lot of people who aren't technical folks who get put in charge of content, bridging that gap is such a huge leap for them. Um, Matt, what about uh, what's going on then in, in your outreach group? Are you guys then plugged right into then the work that Nikki and Brian are doing with hacks or are you in a whole other silo unto yourself? Well, we really are in a very different <laughs> silo. Penn state's a big place and there's a lot of different, groups um 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Nikki and I have had little few opportunities um, to work together. We've, you know, sort of kept in touch, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that we've necessarily um, had more of an opportunity than before when I joined uh, Penn State. Um, and some of that is perhaps due to COVID um, eating at least large quantities of, of, of my time. I don't know about you, Nikki, um, if, if it's eaten a big chunk of your work too. Oh, yeah. Um, less so than the people who are instructional designers who are on the front lines when faculty say put this stuff online. But there, there are definitely effects. You know, people want this new studio redesign, people who didn't have arts courses online from the beginning. <laughs> and uh, we definitely we had issues where um, where when people first went online, we um, we had uh, you know, systems were running slower, but the web components were so fast that there was, a, there was sort of a disconnect between the components that we were working with. So we had to, to do a little bit of refactoring. So for instance, the, the Ali the A11Y media player, um, was using the YouTube API, but I hadn't thought of the, you know, I, the way I was doing it didn't account for a YouTube delay in rendering that initial iframe. Yeah. So, so last year in 2019, I did a presentation on on some usability work we did with with Gutenberg, and um, this is something that the I, I think it's I think what you were talking about is is really a, a piece that that a lot of us who are kind of already pre familiar with many of the concepts behind Gutenberg don't really recognize um, the extent to which Gutenberg represents a you have to have a completely different mental model for how you interact with your web content to use a tool like Gutenberg. And that for folks who are familiar with sort of classic WYSIWYG style editors, the learning curve is, is much steeper, I think, than, than, um, than, than many people recognize. <laughs> and, and we saw that the, some, some of the, some of the big challenges had to do with, um, just this fundamental idea of thinking of things as blocks. Um, that took a lot, a lot more for people to sort of actually sort of get their heads around that. Um, and, uh, and Gutenberg, Gutenberg, it sort of, uh, through its design obscures many of, many of those, uh, sort of fundamental bones of, of it in its desire to also be WYSIWYG as well as structured it hides the structure to make it look like the page. Yeah. You, every, like all the discoverability is through mouse over and things like that. And so, and so many of the affordances and many of the, the sort of visual cues that might help you understand the structure of the thing you're working with and might help you like understand that you have these blocks to work with are, um, are, are, are sort of subordinated in the interface. Um, and I think I think if Gutenberg had a learner mode where it was not so WYSIWYG and where like there was much more sort of signposting and much more sort of omnipresent um, uh, uh, user interface elements, um, it would it would really like make that learning curve much softer for users. Then people could turn it off once they're like, you know, I've got this. I want sort of this more WYSIWYG mode. Um, but it's sort of like at least. The, the way it's currently designed, we actually ended up, I ended up creating a um, WordPress plugin that just uses CSS to kind of at least provide some visual, um, some more visual cues about what's going on. 
I'm immediately reminded of uh, like a the jQuery plugin. I think Joyride um, is the one I'm thinking of where it, it just lets you like mark certain things on a page or whatnot, and it'll do pop-ups and you know take you on that when you go into like a, a new product or something and it does like the product tour or what have you um something like that i could see you know walking you through the the gutenberg editor and yeah and gutenberg uh, does have a a tour but in our in our user research no one ever used it so that didn't help all that much it, its existence didn't help <laughs> it, it, it really needed more just sort of like always there uh interface changes um you know, I think going through a tour would have helped people a lot, but you know, we were and and training obviously helps, but we were sort of wanting to wanting to get at that raw usability, the of the untrained user and to see what they would do. Would they take the tour? Um, but they they didn't take the tour. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's an easy one. Uh, I don't I don't need a lot of research to tell you if they, if they don't read, they yeah. don't check. Um, let's go. So uh, as we talk, obviously COVID nineteen has changed everybody's work approach and schedule and location and, and all of this. Um, and I think in higher ed in particular, the number of fires that have sort of been thrown into your laps with regard to not just the, the strictly technical, but um, Nikki, like you were saying, you know, adapting the LMS to accept all of this content and all of these uh, uh, tools and features that kids need to make and have access to what uh let's let's start with the easy part which is where have you guys found success in terms of adapting you know whether that's your workflows your tools um anything um let's i'm i'm leaving this table wide open in terms of what you consider success uh if that's code you've written or how you write the code um so to speak so that's an interesting question because one of the things that um, that my coworker Brian has been working on is improving the performance of the systems that we're using, and we are now heavily uh, heavily leveraging dynamic imports, and mm -hmm. and so you know in typical JavaScript framework land, you're bundling up everything you could possibly use plus your framework, and loading that the first time some a new user goes to your very first page where what we're doing with with this dynamic importing technique is that uh, we have a cdn of web components and all their dependencies and there's none of the scripts really load other than this script that watches for which components are on the page and then loads any definitions that aren't already cached so you're only getting for each page, the definitions that you have that you need that you don't already have, and we've seen a lot of performance increases or you know performance enhancements from that. And uh, anecdotally, Brian was also teaching um, an information sciences and technology course when COVID hit, and so some of the international students had to go back home. Um, one of his students contacted him and said, "It's great that your content has been." been on this hack CMS thing that you're working on because I can't, the, uh, the third party LMS that we're using learning management system is a react based monolith. And mm -hmm. from India, he was unable to access it, but he could get our course content. And that's, that's the sad part is, you know, there's this, there's always that build versus buy, but a lot of the built products are, are using frameworks. And what we, we wanted to be able to have um, 
open educational resources, OER content. You know, we have open source tools. We want to open source the the course content, drive down the cost of textbooks. And so we had we had built a lot of these systems so that we could author a lot of content at scale and be able to share it across. We have um, we have 20 departments and, you know, and like 20 some campuses across the state. And so to be able to share somebody teaching you know, a basic music course at, at our campus, we want to be able to share once COVID hit with the people that might be at a branch campus who teach a music course and all of a sudden put this stuff online. And with these monolith third-party systems, there was no way to extract and remix that content because faculty all like to teach a little differently. I always talk about teaching as um, it's a lot like wearing somebody else's clothes when you're taking someone else's content. It's not exactly your style. And OER is remixable, so it's like going thrifting to put together your course. The uh, the thing I, I'll take a second to point out to folks, too, if if you've listened to the show um, a couple episodes back, we had Chris Ferdinandi on. He's a huge vanilla JS advocate. And one of the reasons for that is, Nikki, what you're talking about, which is performance. The, the performance you can get from just a page of HTML and a little bit of normal JavaScript is light years ahead of even a very simple React app and how long that can take to load and render for the user, especially international users. So to the thing about web components, if anybody wants to look at this, I'll, I'll throw a link to some of the stuff Brian's been sharing that he's basically written up this very cool little loader. Web components, if you haven't used them, they're custom HTML elements, but you need a little bit of JavaScript to tell the browser what to do with that element. So there's this, let's call it a definition file, for lack of a better term, that you have to load. Normally, you would throw that in a build process and, like you're saying, Nikki, mash them together into this giant file that everybody downloads. Brian, in his big brain thinking, went out and figured out that he can write a very small piece of JavaScript that figures out which specific files it needs to do that and only downloads those on demand to speed up the rendering of the page. It's freaking brilliant. So I'll have, I'll throw some links to that because I think that's very much worth sharing and making sure that uh, uh, people have some insight into. <laughs> there was a, uh, a tweet heard around the high ed community about web performance uh, a couple weeks ago and it was related, it was a New York Times piece about students during the pandemic and the fact that there were students that, not that I know of locally, but students who were going without groceries because their cellular data cost of having to take classes from home during the pandemic, pandemic were, you know, too much for them to be able to do and keep themselves fed. And I think that underscores, you know, universities always have, you know, really great internet access when you're on campus in the same way that Silicon Valley has really great internet access. But when you're talking about anywhere outside of that, lots of rural areas, you leave the United States, all of a sudden bandwidth becomes a big issue. Yeah. And I think a lot of the a lot of the focus has been on performance and performance is important um, from a UX perspective. but once you're talking about data caps and once you're talking about, you know, people's people on, on spotty connections, you know, the actual quantity of data then becomes, and you know, the number of round trips and other things that aren't necessarily performance per se, 
you know, maybe it's all stuff that's happening after the, you know, your first contentful paint or whatever, but like, it's still, it's still charging against your data plan. Have you noticed anything, uh, Paul, with regards, like uh, you've, you're, you're going towards this sort of systemized approach to, to websites is, have you done any research or, or looking into like the performance impacts of, or benefits rather of having sort of that shared design system across multiple sites? Oh yeah. I don't know if we've done necessarily research, but we definitely can show a uh, number of FTE hours saved uh, by doing this. In fact, you're, you're asking about successes. One of the successes that I've, that we've seen, uh, one thing that we've tried to sell administration for years is if we can stop treating every web re website request as a special snowflake, Instead, take that time that we would spend on it and build common features, common wants and needs. We can get to the point where we can churn out sites really, really fast. You know, if we have the stomach to tell people, you want a site, I get that. You're going to get 80% of your needs met. You'll get another 10%. We'll fudge it, right? We'll figure out that other 10%, but you're going to have to compromise on that last 10 and you're not going to get any of your wants right now. We actually finally got to do that. We, we were able to spend a big chunk of the summer building out functionality in these base themes that meet 80% of the needs. And we were able to, to, in the later times as we started going back to class, um, and we had people coming and saying, we need a site within a week. Well, in the past, that would have been unheard of. There's no way we could have gone through the process of figuring out what they want, build all the custom stuff, give them a site. And in this case, we actually were. We were able to start churning out sites in less than a week and giving them 80% of what they need right out the door and then fudging that last little 10%, but then taking even that fudge and going back and saying, okay, what do we need to adjust in these base themes to build out more of these needs or build out that functionality these people need. So now we're able to churn really, really quickly, especially because we're losing more and more of our own resources. Are you using anything on that end? Cause, um, a design system is a big thing. Design systems include design philosophies and uh, branding standards and all of this stuff. But just from like the the web in the web, the, the useful piece that a lot of web people will touch is that pattern library piece of it. Are you use, utilizing anything like either Fractal or Astrum or Pattern Lab or? He's using Fractal. Fractal. Yeah, he uses Fractal to build it. I'm glad to hear that because that's the one I've chosen for a project. So that makes me feel better. About well, it was my on judgment. Pattern Lab and then something didn't work with Pattern Lab and then he shifted to Fractal. And I know that's what he's on now. Yeah, Fractal's a, a neat tool that lets you build in all these little examples of your code and showcase them in abstract. So if you just want to see what your buttons look like, here's what your buttons look like. And here are your variations on those buttons so that when somebody says, um, the, the way I like to talk about it is go shopping. You need to build your site. Here you go. Go shopping. Pick your blocks. Pick your, you know, your content sections. Pick pick your buttons. Some buttons come with the content sections, so be, you know, and we'll have those mocked up there. But it really, a storybook is another one. Um, I think, Nikki, you may be a little familiar with storybook because um, I think, doesn't it ship with uh, 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 libhtml, I think? It is OpenWC. Um, open open, the OpenWC uh, has their own uh, implementation of Storybook specifically for web components. Before they had that, I I struggle to get uh, Storybook up and running. And then anytime yeah, something it's, little changes, it's change, very dense. It was yeah, and um, it's a very dense tool, but it's very cool. It 
the thing storybook has over something like fractal to me is it has all these dials and tweaks like you can not only like define like different uh different variants of a thing but you can code in uh all the little check boxes and stuff to set different things for like real time in the in the display so you want to see it disabled on a small screen on mouse over and you can check those boxes or if you want to change the width of its container element you can make that uh, a variable that can be resized it's very cool i think if you're really into qa i think is where somebody would really geek out about that because you can write you can write integration tests that literally use storybook change all these variables in real time you know take the screenshot and see if all your stuff still looks the way it's supposed to look but yeah not easy to get there from my experience yeah. it's it's very nice once you do uh we have a lot of um so that that web form with all of the controls basically they call that a knobs and they control slots within web components which is just the inside of a web component and the right. attributes on the tag and properties but you can play around with those within those fields and then that would you know update the component and we've added pieces that give you the code snippet that you can just easily copy so that once you've tweaked that within our instance webcomponents.psu.edu um, if you play around with our components and you play around with those knobs, you'll get a customized version of that that you can just copy and paste. Um, on the developer end of it, um, I started writing a, uh, a set of scripts that allow me to write these stories a lot faster and to add sort of a randomization element. It's uh, some of these, I call them lorem data tools. And so yeah. uh, it throws in, right now it's just using... Um, the TV series community. So there's a lot of community quotes and some of the random stuff that shows up, but it'll give random accent colors, random numbers, random icons. And that helps us see how things look too. And Matt, what about from your end um, being apart from some of this, uh, this web component hacks craziness? Uh, what have you guys found success with in terms of the outreach and, and the work that you're doing? Well, just personally, you know, one of the things that has been um, a big part of this year for me has been I I came from a place where I was very, uh, you know, I, I had I had become a jack of all trades, and so I was just personally stretched incredibly thin. Um, I was, you know, I was doing everything from. Um, you know, uh, uh, backend development to, you know, I, I was putting together our pattern library, um, in pattern lab. I was doing UX and design work. Um, I was doing, you know, I was the accessibility expert. I was, I was the everything in, in my previous role. And, um, I'm now able to focus on the part of my work that, that, is sort of my strength. And so, um, that's, that's, that's personally been incredibly gratifying, um, and enabled me to do some things which I've wanted to do, you know, for forever. It seems like, um, one of the things that, that I'm currently working on is a, um, pretty large scale top tasks, uh, survey, um, 
because none has none's ever really been done uh, that I'm aware of. Um, there's you know there there's other kinds of surveys that 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 get at um, sort of measuring the the temperature and of of our our this is sort of thinking particularly about our prospective students, um, but we've we've never really done one that's that's aimed at getting a really solid quantitative sense of you know what's most important to prospective students when they're visiting our site um and so you know that's going to be i think a really great foundation moving forward that's you know it's still in progress we haven't launched the survey yet but just um you know being able to work on that being able to work on it with a really solid marketing research team um who's able to you know sort of sort of take it to another level than i would have been able to do all by myself um has been uh, really great. So that's that's been something that just personally <laughs> is really thrilling to work on stuff like that, and, and probably helps reduce stress greatly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's not all on me to you know to make that right decision when when there are other people in the room who you know probably have more expertise about about you know certain aspects, um, and and where I, I don't have to always be the expert about everything. Yeah. So we talked about the easy part. The easy part is dealing with the successes because it's easy to know uh, and much more comfortable um, to deal with what we do well. What has posed the biggest challenge for you all right now in terms of making these changes and adaptations and all of that to to whether it's COVID, whether it's shrinking budgets, whether it's changes, you know, just in in your personnel you know whatever the case may be where where have you found some of those struggles in terms of this year i think this year the biggest thing is everybody wants something and everybody wants it now <laughs> and has to have it now the core group of developers for all of the things I've described, Hacks, the Studio, Elms Ellen, the, the Drupal-based um, the Drupal-based content system, Hacks CMS, all of that, um, and the beauty of web components is that we've been doing all of that with a core team of four developers. But that also means now that everybody wants us to work on all of them now, what we're really interested in is having contributors and um, you know, we've been talking about how we're doing this so that we can benefit all of higher ed and it's componentized so people can adopt, you know, maybe they just adopt the player and they don't want to adopt anything else because they want to figure out this whole web components universe. Um, maybe they just want the hacks uh, block editor. Maybe they go all the way to the CMS and everything else that we build. But, you know, we could do so much more as people become aware that this is here and there are so many levels to contribute, whether that's to the documentation or just submitting an issue in the issue queue. Uh, we have a developer in France that is doing some accessibility and internationalization stuff for us. And we welcome that. I, I really love it when people tell me my work needs to be fixed because that means it's going to get better. It would be like me walking around with something in my teeth and nobody telling me. So um, I know I know people can be really touchy about getting feedback and critiques, but um, the the Elms LN community loves contributions. And it's uh, it's worth pointing out that if you're listening to this on release day, there are still a few days left in Hacktoberfest. 
I'm just going to throw that out there. There's still time. If you are looking for a project to go uh, make some PRs to, maybe Hacks is uh, one of those little things that you find a niche in. Yeah, and it's a friendly community. I mean, I'm, I am, you know, an over 40 female type. And, you know, I know people talk about toxic developer communities. This is, this is the farthest you could be from toxic. So it's, it's a place where if you're new or if you're not sure if you're welcome, you belong with us. Trust me. And, and the, the thing that I'll kind of vouch for is knowing Nikki, um, knowing Brian certainly better now than I did before. Um, you know, these are people who are also educators. And so to, to say that, you know, they are in this to help people learn. And even if they're not teaching in a classroom necessarily, it's still, uh, it's still no different from anywhere else. And so if you want to learn, if you're looking for that area, um, I would definitely argue that that is a great place to get started. Go read some documentation, go look at what they're doing. Um, and you may surprise yourself. We're sort of having a uh, Halloween party next week on Friday um, in the Elms LN Slack space that anyone is welcome to join. We put out an invitation to a Zoom call and it's, we call it an uncode review. Basically it's anybody can bring up a topic, whether it's something they wanna show off or if they have questions, even the most basic questions related to, to our projects and web components, we're happy to answer. It's we get such a variety of people. So if that's something that somebody really wants to, you know, try something new, you know, join us for our big Halloween party. I I stress frequently how important mentorship is in our industry and you know, how that, that's how we get better. That's how all of us improve on things. And, you know, here, here I am, I'm very near 40. And that's something every time I jump into new JavaScript and stuff, it's like, who can show me what I'm trying to do here? Because I know I'm in over my head. <laughs> I just presented and um, on web components in a 10 minute talk and got a lot of interest in it. And one person was, you know, reached out to me and said, well, how do I get started? And this has happened a couple of times, but it made me write a getting started article from the very beginning. Like just, I'm not even a developer. I just want to, you know, play with your stuff with HTML code. And I went back and I told that person, you know, thank you, because this, your question makes it better. Even the, the fact that you asked a question. And Matt, what's, uh, in, in your area, where are you hitting the biggest sort of roadblocks or speed bumps in terms of, especially like from the UX side, we, we don't, being the Drunken UX podcast, we should probably talk about UX much more than we do um, as a specific topic, but you know, is I can imagine, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a pitch out to you and see if uh, see how it goes. But you know how how even does user experience research work in the world of everybody being remote and not being able to bring people into your you know into your labs or into your spaces so that you can look over their shoulder and watch them interact with things. Um, I've actually been having to figure this out. Previously, I had been doing most of my research in person and uh, oftentimes very guerrilla style, just, you know, like sitting at a table in, you know, the student union or sitting at, you know, sort of uh, grabbing prospective students in the admissions office. I, I'd say the, the biggest challenge has been recruitment um, with 
you know, with, with in-person, particularly with students, it's very easy to recruit using pizza, but that doesn't work online. So, so sort of recruitment efforts have had to be a lot more formal. The actual, you know, doing of the, you know, if if you're doing just as a standard usability study, it's not really that different. Uh, You know, just using any screen sharing software seems to work really great actually for, uh, you know, observing, observing users. There's, you know, there's, there's maybe if, if we were trying to do something that was a little bit more, uh, a contextual analysis where we're like wanting to see their workspace and that sort of thing, that would probably be a little more challenging. Typically, I, you know, in pre- previous life, I'd been used to being able just to go into people's offices. In terms of challenges, other kinds of challenges, one of the big challenges has been, we, I, I've been part of a group, the, the, the big part of our work typically in, in, in our group is supporting Penn State World Campus, which has been, which has not been dramatically impacted by by COVID, but what, so there's two things that have, that have really changed. One is that some of the research that we want to do that's sort of more about attitudes is very hard to do right now because, because we don't know, we can't necessarily bank on anything we come out of that kind of research continuing to hold true for any period of time. You know, it's so, it's so particular to this moment. Right. Um, and so that's that's really challenging. And there's actually a fair amount of qualitative research that we've just put on the shelf uh, that that we you know, we've just tried to figure out other ways to do it. And in fact, this top task research is part of the reason why we're focusing on that right now is because it, it felt like a kind of uh, more structured kind of research that we felt like we could still get some really useful and hopefully more like durable insights. The other thing is that we've is that our group has been has been tasked with uh, maintaining the uh, continuity of learning and continuity of teaching sites for Penn State, and that's been a much like larger amount of work than I think we had anticipated. Uh, you know, the pandemic being a larger thing than most people anticipated at the beginning, of course. But the one of the real challenges has been. When when we enter a new realm, we oftentimes don't apply the expertise that we already have, we've already built up in other realms to that new realm. We we sort of act like an absolute beginner and we don't sort of transfer that those skills over. <laughs> and I think that's true for institutions too. You know, institutions that maybe have built up good governance and good um, sort of processes uh, for their sort of their, 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 their operationalized web work um, for in, in this crisis communication, in this like extremely long-term crisis communication situation that, that we've been in, um, a lot of that has, has, you know, it's sort of like, it's like that, that, that stuff doesn't exist. Um, and we are kind of back at square one of governance and process. And so, you know, we're, we're in the, we're in that situation that you, you never want to be in where there's umpteen different stakeholders all just sort of pelting you with things that you didn't know were going to show up and it needs to go on the, on, on the website the next day. And I think probably a lot of people at a lot of institutions are in that situation with, with the right process and with the right sort of, um, uh, governance in place, you know, it could have, it could have been a different story. And so, you know, we've been, um, you know, trying to trying to sort of make our silk purses out of our sow's ears. It, it adds a lot of weight to what 
Paul was saying, I think, in, in the success that they've found getting their design system rolled in as a, you know, a function of the way they are starting to do development now so that when those requests come in, like you were just saying, you know, they they don't have to reinvent things over and over. They have found an enormous amount of efficiency by being able to, you know, componentize and systemize their development and their themes such that somebody asks for something. Now they can be much more nimble and meet that 80% threshold. We use that same kind of uh, vernacular at work as well. This let's, let's get that, that easy 80%, you know, the 80, 20 rule will pursue the other 20% when that value makes sense. Um, but not force ourselves to keep fighting, you know, fighting back against this need to make everything custom or everything new every single time. I think yeah, Matt yeah. hit the nail on the head with the, uh, you know, transferring that old knowledge to a new situation in, you know, because I'm working in the, you know, after somebody's actually decided to go here and has opted to go online, our courses have been designed from the get-go to, to be online. So, the typical pre-COVID process for taking a course and saying, here's my course, I'm going to start working on it, and I'm going to put it online, takes a couple of semesters to, to actually happen. And, and that's because there's, you know, instructional media that's involved. There's thinking about how that transfers to an online space. There's a lot of planning that goes into that. And then I, I really feel for all the educators who had to up and do this, so there's, there's going to be a difference. There's a whole generation of, of people who are going to think online learning is something different because what they got is the, the TV dinner version. And what we usually do is prepare a five course meal. So there's a, there's a big difference between the courses that are offered. And a lot of people don't know how to transfer that skill. And you see a, a great variety. A lot of people think it's just putting up PowerPoints or putting up 40 minute videos, which is a really bad user experience. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that we got into this, uh, the block editing and the authoring that we're doing is because uh, a lot of course content management systems that are out of the box assume a face-to-face -face environment where you're just uploading your slides and that's it. And maybe taking a couple of tests. It doesn't allow for that media rich, interactive lab and simulation environment where, you know, one activity is this, you get some information and then you try it out. It's not a lot of online LMSs that are offered to people are not, are not built for, for the ideal way to learn online. And so we built the block editor for that reason. So what you're getting, the best is yet to come. You know, as people start to figure out that this this stuff's available and this is how we're going to have to learn. A lot of opportunity in all of the frustration and all the inconvenience. Um, and even Nikki's cat agrees with me on, on that sentiment. Uh, let me close this out on uh, sort of a just a, a side uh, discussion here. I'm curious to know, as this year has gone on and, you know, you've worked remotely or, you know, worked with in collaborative environments in different ways. Um, you know, whether that's approaching Matt, the, the testing side of UX or, or Nikki, you know, developing and testing web components and, and things like this, what tools have you found? And I'm not talking like just zoom, you know, everybody has to use zoom or hangouts or something or Slack, but like, with regards to the actual web side of things, what are the tools that you are finding either newfound appreciation for or just 
new, you know, new stuff that you didn't have in your tool chest before to help you accomplish what you're working on now. Yeah, for for me, uh, there are some uh, sort of came in, and there was uh, there there wasn't an there wasn't a strong existing um, library of uh, you know pre-built design components um, in any in any design tool. Um, there was a bunch of Illustrator files, um, and so you know I was it was sort of like well you know pick what you know what UX design tool you want to use, and so I got you know it's kind of a fun chance to just play around with um some some various options i'd already been using sketch a lot and you know i got to play around with figma Mm -hmm. which i like um in the end so far i've i've settled on on xd um just because it's something that i can you know i can i can transfer with colleagues a little more easily um within my setting um but uh you know that's just been kind of a, a fun process to play around with those tools um, and there's definitely things that XD is is still pretty rough around the edges, um, but it has some some very like powerful stuff going on, um, and and so I'm I you know I'm I'm appreciated that the things about it that are there to appreciate um, also have have been able to to dive a lot more into Optimal Workshops um, offerings, uh, and so that's been you know it, it's it's been good to to just sort of more broadly use some of some of their tools recently did did a bunch of tree testing um and uh and and also helped um helped wp campus a little bit with some um card sorting and tree testing work they were doing for their their website redesign which was fun and i'll I'll attest to the xd component of that if anybody is interested in wireframing, prototyping, um, you know, design language type uh, tools. The beautiful thing about XD is if you already have Photoshop or uh, um, I actually got the creative suite for the photography deal, you get XD for free. It's just included with your subscription. And so a lot of it, it's one of those things that if you don't know it's there, go look because you just get it and it's it's easily available. Um, we are a Figma shop at work now, so that's a, I, I use XD for my personal stuff, but then Figma is where we land for um, all of our work stuff, but has been very useful, um, irrespective of which one. Yeah, I found Figma to be really fun to use. Um, we, we used it for the, for the um, WP campus redesign and just being able to, to sit with, you know, two other designers on a, on a call and simultaneously, you know, move things around and, and, and uh, throw together um, wireframes and stuff like that was really fun. You know, the silly thing about Figma that I, I kind of like um, is oh, cause I'm a, I'm not a user of it in, in the designer sense. I'm a consumer of what our designers make. So I read it to make the stuff in HTML when we're all in there you can see everybody's cursors moving around. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's silly, yeah. but it makes me laugh. The thing, the thing, if if I have a big gripe about XD, it's it's um, the typography and type handling, which I'm so I'm I'm so shocked about because this is Adobe. Like I would think they could just you know just pull that stuff in from like just pick one of their other products, right? Um, but they're you know you you cannot, for example, in a single text block. You cannot apply different textiles to that block. You cannot apply different line heights, even though you can apply different font sizes. 
Um, and so, you know, there's just this, like, it, it just feels like this incredibly crude aspect of the software. Um, I'm hoping they're working on it. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really miss is a lot of times the, the people who are local to my team would just meet at a local Starbucks on campus sometimes because we were, you know, two of us are in the arts college, then two of us are in the college of science and, you know, eventually we were picking up some other people um, because Brian teaches courses. There are students who get really interested in the project and the ethics behind it. And I call them Brian's disciples that would stop by um, <laughs> people from other departments that were curious. And it's, you know, so you could do some sort of like shared coding environment. And I, it wasn't until the pandemic that I really used the live share feature on, uh, on VS Code. And yeah. I've been using that to sometimes I'll block off my time to get some other people on campus who want to start contributing sort of up to speed. It's nice to have that, you know, one-on-one -on -one talk. I could let them drive, but still have the ability to, to step in if needed. Uh, if you don't use VS code, Adam has a similar feature called teletype. Um, so if you haven't converted, I'm, I'm a VS code uh, convert now. I was, totally Adam up until earlier this year, but, um, VS code stole me. Um, so I can, I can appreciate that, but there is a similar feature both ways that, um, we, as part of like a swarm for our team, we, cause we had been playing with a lot of this. And, and if anything, we've taken that opportunity to kind of refine, I think some of our interactions and relationships and, um, Anything else that uh, either of you would like to add to this discussion before we get out of here? Well, that, that's reminding me of, of I, I'm still looking for a good tool. I, I heard mentioned a Hyatt Web Miro as one, uh, sort of a, a, a digital whiteboarding collaborative tool. But um, you know, if either of you or anyone else has any good suggestions for that, that's something that that particularly given the fact that that I'm I'm remote. I'm a remote employee for the long term, so you know I'm I'm going to need I'm going to need something like that. Uh, a big part of my design process is collaborative uh, sketching, um, whiteboard work, and so you know it's it's something that that I've been able to work around to some extent, but I, I do feel that pain of of not having that. Um, the one that I have used, I've used Miro, um, whiteboard.fi. Um, now it's been a long time since I've used it, so I I can't necessarily speak to how it is now, um, but it was useful. I think probably two years ago is the last time I used it, so that that may be one worth looking into and just see kind of what it's like in this day and age. I'll throw links to those in the show notes, um, and yeah, and if anybody, if any of the listeners have uh, suggestions, by all means, um, throw them at us throw them in the comments on the show notes or hit us on, on Twitter or any of those places. I'd uh, be happy to hear. And not just on whiteboards, but anything, any of the tools you're using, any of the um, resources that have come in handy. So I've been using, because I don't have my big whiteboard, I bought myself a whiteboard note or a dry erase notebook because I had tried before, you know, when the pandemic first hit with just a bunch of note papers. And I, as you've noticed, I have desk cats. And they don't like my stacks of paper, <laughs> but this wonderful dry erase notebook has been a way that I don't have to convert a bunch of my wall space to whiteboard and I can, you know, still whiteboard ideas. Folks, 
kick back, uh, stay with us for one more minute and we will get you right back onto your next show. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. I hope this was helpful to you. Um, Nikki, Paul, Matt, A, thanks for taking time out of your evening to sit down. I know you're all coming in hot out of high ed web and the amount of work and time and effort that go into running and speaking and doing all of those things. So I appreciate um, to the end of the earth, the flat earth and back, um, you taking that time to spend with us this evening. Paul, unfortunately, did have to cut out a little bit early on us. If you want to find him, he's at Gilzow on Twitter. Um, he is a uh, ridiculously brilliant mind, and he will be too uh, humble to ever admit it, but he's a, a Red Stapler winner at High Ed Web. He's done some of the best talks I've ever heard um, and is a smart, smart dude. So if you have a chance to connect with him, I highly recommend it. But Nikki, Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you. Take the microphone for a few minutes. Tell folks where they can find you, what you got going on, uh, and anything else that you want them to know. Well, Thanks, everyone. Um, I'm at mryand, M-R-Y-A-N-D, on Twitter. Um, and that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, happy to, happy to talk about any of these topics or anything else. And I'm Nikki Massaro-Kaufman. You can get me at NikkiMK on Twitter. Um, that's also how you can get to me, NikkiMK at PSU.edu, although I also have the uh, Penn State alias Evil Genius at PSU.edu. So if you're <laughs> feeling like you want to send in a very fun way, you can catch me that way. And our project, uh, HacksTheWeb.org, has some more details on how you can get involved with our work. And don't forget the ElmsLN Slack, ElmsLNSlack.com. We'll have links to all of those and more in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of us, we're easy to find Twitter or Facebook slash Drunken UX. Uh, Instagram is slash Drunken UX podcast. Uh, if you want to join us on Discord, drunkenux.com slash Discord. I hope everybody found a little bit of usefulness in this and, and learned a little something and, and took away some, uh, some nuggets. There's a favorite piece of advice that uh, Doug always gives at High Ed Web, which is you're going to learn a lot. You're going to hear a lot of stories. You're going to hear a lot of talks that give you a wealth of information. And all you need to worry about is find the one thing that was valuable and apply that one thing. And if you can do that, then all of all of the learning was worthwhile. And I'm going to say that about this episode. Go back, listen through it, find the one thing that was useful, valuable, um, that can help you out and either apply it or ask us a question about it or do whatever uh, it takes. Because when it comes to building good websites, whether it doesn't matter if you're in higher ed, it doesn't matter if you're in accounting or hospitality or, or uh, healthcare or any of those industries, 
the biggest piece of advice that matters is that you keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye.